I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. Of Acts, the 15th chapter, verses 22 through 29. Acts, the 15th chapter, 22 through 29. Then pleased at the apostles and the elders of the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, um, yeah, Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and the elders and the brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles. That's us, by the way, Gentiles. In Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your soul, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled upon accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from meats, Offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye you keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. You may be seated. This is one of those, uh, I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, the Book of Acts lessons that we've had. Um, the Book of Acts is something you ought to read through at least once a year. The book of Acts is the history of the apostolic church. It's a history of the church, period. And uh, it is the only church. And so if you want to know how to get into the church, you read the book of Acts, because it will tell you that. But reading through some of the things that they had to deal with last week, we talked about some of the problems they had to deal with and how that really, in reality, it should make us feel good because we have a tendency to put the apostles upon pedestals, like they could do absolutely no wrong. They never had any trouble and all this. But they had a lot of trouble. They had a ton of trouble. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. You'll talk to see how much trouble they really did have. Uh, it, it went a lot. Because when you have people, you have problems. Uh, where there is no oxen, the stall stays clean. But by strength of the oxen, you can get a lot of work done. So in other words, you don't have to shovel out the barn if you don't have anything in it. Okay, but when you have a lot of people, you have to shovel out the barn. And for those of you who don't realize what that is, uh, again, ask Tony. He will tell you, explain later after what I'm talking about. Okay, it's just so good to have him down here on the front on a Sunday morning. I can't help it. You know, I just really enjoy that. But um, I, I value, and this is this is something I, that I look into, and and this lesson this morning really touches well upon it. I value truth. These days, I think more than I ever have before. I, I value that. I, I'm one of those guys that when you, you want to sell me something, you want to sell me an appliance, uh, and I'm, appliances right now is a, is a real, real sensitive area in, in, in my life. Uh, I've really had a sensitivity. You know, you, you go to these big box stores and they buy something, they're going to put it in for you. And you might get it put in within the next millennium. And then when they make a mistake, it takes another millennium for them to fix that. So you've got 2,000 years invested. 
to try to get it in. And then when it doesn't work, you have to wait another millennium to go get another one. So you get 3,000 years. So what I'm saying is this. You need to tell me everything. If you're selling me an appliance, a car, give me the whole story up front. I value someone. It's like a car mechanic. I like a car mechanic says, now this is what I'm going to do, and I'm not doing any more. If a thing doesn't run, it's not my fault, but this is what I did. Don't do something and throw on another $1,000 at the end of it. I want everything up front. Doctor, whatever it is that my problem is, tell me up front. Don't keep me coming back just simply so you can make more money. Tell me everything up front. Be straightforward and be honest with me. I want full disclosure. Tell me why or it is the way it is and tell me the reality of everything that you're talking to me about. Because we live in a day of price gouging. We live in a day of financial scams, credit card fraud, and identity theft. It's interesting that uh, nine, or in, I started saying 1912. Boy, I'm really off. 2012, uh, the U.S. distrust in the media hit a brand new high, according to a Gallup poll. Lamari Morales wrote, he said, Americans distrust the media, uh, excuse me, the Americans distrust in the media hit a new high this year with 60% saying that they have little or no trust in the mass media to report the news fully, accurately, and fairly. Now that was again September of 2012. Trust in federal politicians, business executives, police officers, medical practitioners has fallen across a large range of our countries. So when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm saying all that to say this. When it comes to the gospel, you need to give me the full, the whole gospel. Do not water it down. Don't tell me a part of the gospel. Tell me the whole gospel. I cannot afford to play with my soul. I cannot afford to make a mistake when it comes to where I'm going after this life ends. And believe me, this life goes by real fast. Real, real fast. So give me the truth. Now, in what I just read to you concerning the apostles and what they were dealing with, let's look at this for a moment, because it was an exciting time for the church. But yet it was a, it was a challenging time as well. With every move of God, and God was moving in that time mightily, there seemed to be a corresponding resistance. And believe me, that has not changed one bit. And it never will, because that's the way God has ordained things. You get a mighty move of God, the devil's going to see to it that you get some resistance. And you're going to deal with that. That's how you know you're having a mighty move of God. And how much more mightily God is going to move if you get resistance. If the devil can stop the momentum of a church, then he's got the church. If he can make us think that no more good things are going to happen miracles are ended, no more revival, then he'll do just that. But we know that when he resists us, that God is going to show us a way through, that God is going to help us and strengthen us, and we will see a mighty move of an evangelistic thrust into our community that our Sunday school will fill up and that our vans will fill up and that people will begin to understand that God has got everything well in control and nothing, nothing is impossible with him. If you believe that, give him a mighty hand clap but 
The apostles rose above the storms of protest they, the, the, and, and persecution. They proclaimed the unadulterated gospel with tremendous courage and deep conviction. And one reason that the early church survived and even excelled was that the disciplined behavior of its members, that's the key. Because if a, a church has got disciplined people in it, then things can continue to move. God can continue to move, and he will. Because these people were motivated by love. There was a high reverence for the Word of God, and God give us back that reverence again. Because you can't have anything unless you have people that love the Word of God. And they had a genuine respect for apostolic leadership, that as well. So when false doctrine appeared, there was confidence the problem could be dealt with in a proper manner. The winds of false doctrine may blow ever so gently at first. This is how false doctrine works. False doctrine is always a gentle breeze right at the beginning. And, and new Christians in particular may not notice that they're being maneuvered and that basic truths of the gospel are being undermined or something else has taken the place of a fundamental faith in Jesus Christ. And too frequently warnings of experienced leaders, uh, just, they just go unheeded. God-given authority may be subtly questioned and even openly challenged. This is how false doctrine begins to creep in, very subtly. Things that you look at, all of a sudden you, know, you realize that when you came in and you heard the preaching of the Word and you, you realized the difference in your life when you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, you realize how cleansed you felt when you were baptized in Jesus' name. You realize when you got up from repentance that you felt something lift off your shoulders, that you felt the burden begin to fall away from you. And, and you, you embraced holiness, and you embraced standards, and you embraced all this. And then all of a sudden, there's this wind that starts blowing around. And it, it can come from a lot of different sources. It can come from the person right next to you. It can come from people that you know from some other, and they may even say that they believe the same way that you do. But they begin to challenge Something that is preached that is, that is unquestionably in the Scripture. They begin to cause you to question, and before long, you begin to question authority and leadership, and, 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 and then you go the way of the world. Because let me tell you one thing. If you don't get anything else this morning, get this. When you embrace something and you let go of it, that is the first step in a fall that you will undoubtedly walk into you won't quit with one thing it'll continue to go downhill and go downhill and go downhill until there's no difference between you and the world and that's exactly what will happen when you begin to embrace and begin to question what the word of god teaches now again those breezes that at first seem mild and harmless can suddenly become a terrible tempest threatening to destroy individual believers and in fact will destroy entire congregations Listen, a church doesn't necessarily exist because the building is still there and it's still full of people. That doesn't mean the church is there. I mean, you can have a bowling league. You can have a bunch of people who golf on Saturdays and women get together and gossip while the husbands are out, you know, bowling or playing golf or going fishing. You know, any of these things. But that doesn't necessarily mean a church is there. A church, a church, whether we like to hear this or not, will always be, a real church will always be in battle. They'll always be fighting and pressing on and taking new ground. And they will have the joy 
and the peace of knowing that they are a church because they are battling. Now, it's one thing to be battling uh, something that ourselves, because we don't want to maintain what we know to be true. It's something else to be battling because we are going to maintain what is true. Because there will always be people out there that try to rob you of that. That's the subtleness. That's the subtleness of false doctrine. From the early days of the church, there's always been a threat from those who have taught false doctrine. Over and over in the New Testament, writers strove to protect believers from those who would have perverted the gospel message. Paul wrote to the Ephesian converts that they should be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive you. Peter strongly warned against the false teachers when he said, who will suddenly and stealthily introduce heretical doctrines, destructive heresies, even denying and disowning the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. That's the Amplified Bible. So that's 2 Peter 2.1. So, so you see that even at the beginning, these false doctrines were there, and that's not changed. It is still out there and still just as rampant as ever. So what is it? What is it about false doctrine that, that often makes it difficult to detect? What, what is it? Let me just ask the question. What is it about false doctrine that makes it so difficult to detect? Go ahead. Mixed with just a little bit of truth. That's what Satan did at the very beginning with Eve. They mix just enough truth in there, just enough that you know it's that you you you'll pick it up, you'll swallow it. And obviously, Satan uses false doctrine to deceive those who are the most susceptible. Generally, again, there's enough there's enough truth mixed in with error to make the whole thing seem very palatable. And often there is a, a misinterpretation, even a twisting of the scriptures. Often half-truths are spread by those who, who promise much but really deliver nothing. Now, Jude spoke of these kind of people, people who make all these promises about what can happen that they can't deliver. And he said these are people, in Jude 12, he said these people are clouds that are without water and they're carried about by winds. They're just clouds. They're out there. They don't offer anything. It's like in the middle of a drought you see this cloud up there and you're thinking, wow, we're going to get some rain, but there's nothing in that cloud. You can't, always, you can't always believe what you see. And let me take this one step further. Not even those, all the people who look like they are in church are truly in church. There are some people that all their, their, their relationship with God is based on an outward standard only. My outward standard is based on my relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what it's based on. And I, don't, uh, I just don't go around looking like I look simply because I, I, I want to impress you. I look the way I look because I want to impress him. And I love him. And I do it out of relationship with him. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is, this is Acts 15 and 1. And so you've got, you got this group that's coming down, and they're telling all these Gentile Christians, like us. It would be like a Jewish person would walk in the back door and tell all the men, and said, you can't make it unless you're circumcised. You can't make it to heaven. You know what? 
And we're brand new Gentiles. And, you know, we don't have a clue what the guy's talking about to begin with. And even if we did, we wouldn't have anything to do with him. I guarantee you that. And so, so you know, you, you have this man, and this is what they were dealing with. They were, con- they were completely. So, so what was all this, this, this excitement about? What was, he was asked all this, what happened? Why were they, everything was so messed up? And after all these men who had arrived at Antioch would certainly have professed to be followers of Jesus Christ and to have faith in the Scriptures, they may have represented the opinion of a good number of others back in Judea, that Jesus was the Christ, but that the law of Moses also must be kept by every believer. It wasn't just a fact of circumcision. It was the law of Moses. The law of Moses. They said, now, I, I, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is a Messiah. I've got the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I've been baptized in Jesus' name. But you still got to abide by the law of Moses. You've got to be circumcised. Now, let me tell you why circumcision was such an uh, element here. It was the fact that in the New Testament church, baptism in Jesus' name was a circumcision of the heart. It took the place of outward physical circumcision. And for them to say that you had to be circumcised was taking or minimizing what Jesus' name baptism was all about. Let me tell you, when I went down in the water, I was 10 years old, and I never forgot that. I never forgot the effect that that had on me. That's why it drives me insane where people come back and say, you know, I, I, I was 10. And they say, well, I'm not sure I knew what baptism was all about. I need to be baptized again. When you get it done right, my friend, let me tell you, and your heart's right with God, you don't need to be baptized again. One time in Jesus' name is enough. Because that, from that point on, I've got faith in His name that His name is going to take care of me. That His name is going to heal me. That His name is going to deliver me. And I don't need anything else. But they were telling them, you know, you, you had to be circumcised. In fact, let's just, let's just let's take this one step further. Let's go, to, let's go to Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Let's go to Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In whom, now then, this is King James, in whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him. In, and look at this. This is the circumcision made without hands, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who had raised him from the dead. It tells you right there. Paul was telling the church of Colossae. He said, this is, uh, this is what takes the place. This is the sign of the new covenant. We don't go back to the old, uh, old ways. We don't go back to the Mosaic law. We don't have to be obedient to those areas of, of, of fact of ceremony and ritual. And that's what they were talking about. Yes, we do believe in the moral laws. And we still, we still abide by those moral laws because Jesus taught on those moral laws in Matthew 5 and 7. He taught on those. And we believe them. But we don't need uh, the circumcision of the flesh. So they had been a great move of God in Antioch in Acts eleven twenty four. Barnabas, with the help of Saul or Paul, had spent an entire year teaching many people the doctrines of Christ. But now these Judaizers had arrived. They were promoting a new gospel of faith in Christ plus the works of the law. They were saying that unless the Gentiles observe circumcision and thus begin to submit themselves to all the ordinances of the law, they could not truly be Christians. This false doctrine was threatening to cause serious dissension and division within the church. And that's exactly what was happening. For Paul and Barnabas, the matter at hand was crucial. For it involved the salvation of souls. They spoke out forcefully against what they knew to be false teaching. 
Circumcision had been a sign of a covenant relationship between God and his people, the Jews. But now there was a new covenant established with a new sign, and this covenant was introduced through water baptism. There was no power in the ancient observances to cleanse the heart. You couldn't cleanse the heart of the people. It was obvious. They knew this. They had, a lot of these men had lived by the law. What good did it do them? But through Jesus Christ, through the, uh, through, the, through, through the baptism in his name and through the infilling of the Holy Ghost, they, have, they had a new life. There was something different. They truly lived in righteousness and they had peace and they had joy because they were obedient. Because they were obedient. So Paul, he related and works the law to the flesh and with all of its weaknesses. On the other hand, he spoke of the remarkable power of the Holy Ghost working in believers. For the apostle, it was a difference between bondage and freedom, between servanthood and sonship. Paul could not understand how believers could even consider going back to the rites and the ceremonies of the law. In fact, he said in Galatians 3.3, he said, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you made perfect by the flesh? He said, You started this thing in the Spirit. It should be finished in the Spirit, not by the works of the law, not by, not by the flesh. There's no good thing in the flesh. The flesh leads us into problems. The flesh, the flesh leads us into things we don't want to be involved in. Why would we go back to something that was like that? That's, that's the, the very thing that, that I, I tell people, you know, they're backsliding. Why would you want to go back to that? You know, so you can go to the bar, so you can take the drugs, so you, know, you, can, you can dress the way you want to. Then what value was that before? How did it help you before to do that? It doesn't. You don't have the peace any longer. You don't have the righteousness any longer. You don't have the joy any longer. True joy only comes when a person has got right relationship with Jesus Christ. That is where true joy originates. Paul and Barnabas have to be admired for their stand for truth. They were willing to be personally criticized, even ostracized, rather than, than have the heavy yoke of Jewish uh, legalism placed upon their shoulders, or rather, placed on the shoulders of the Gentiles. And in addition, Paul understood that to insist that new Christians had to become Jewish proselytes was to subvert the gospel. It negated the sufficiency of the cross. For the sake of the gospel, Paul and Barnabas was determined to see the battle through. And when it was decided they and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the apostles and the elders, they began their journey through Phoenicia and Samaria. And as they journeyed, the apostles confidently declared the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy into all the brethren, according to Acts 15 and 3. So as they traveled, they were telling everyone of how the Gentiles were converted. And how wonderful it was. And evidently, Paul and Barnabas were warmly welcomed by the apostles and the elders. You know, they was Paul and Barnabas done a wonderful work. They were, they were warmly welcomed by the apostles and the elders. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, but the atmosphere soon changed when the issue regarding the Gentile Christians was raised. There rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it was time for the church to take a decisive action. All right, are we going to go back to what things used to be? Or are we going to go forward? We 
as the true church of Jesus Christ, any church, when I say that, I'm talking about the body of Christ as a whole, not just here. When we embrace the truth of the Word of God, it's almost impossible for us to ever go back and find any contentment in anything we ever was before. I said that earlier. But let's take that further. Let's take it, let's take it to the fact that you've come in out of a, uh, of a denominal church of some kind, even, uh, even a Catholic church. If you would go back and try to embrace some of those things that they did just to somehow ease your conscience because you were raised that way, you will find yourself in a dilemma and confusion like you've never seen before. You can't go back and, 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 and do something when you have seen how wonder there is here. And, folks, I mean, we have salvation. We have it. We know we've got salvation. We've got it right. But there is such a wonderful, uh, wonderful area that we have yet to get into, a panorama, if you would, of joy and peace and, and working within the spiritual things that we have never really yet touched on. God has so much more. I read the Bible, and I'm sorry, I've read and reread it, and I still see things I would like to get a hold of. I would still like to get out of, I know that I can't get out of the flesh, but there's areas where I'd wish I could take it off and lay it aside and get into everything that God has for me. And I believe we can go a whole lot further than what we are today. But why reach back and grab something that's like a lead weight that holds you from going forward? So they took a wonderful stand. It is time again for the church to take a decisive action, to deal with this thorny matter. A special meeting was called with the apostles and elders attending. And once the issue had been hotly debated, Peter stood up to address the fellow believers. Let me ask you a question. This is, this is something that, that I, I've wondered about. Have you, ever, have you ever had a preconceived ideas of any kind of what God would do only to discover he would go well beyond anything you'd ever imagined. Have you ever had that? A preconceived idea of what God will do, only to find out that he could go far and beyond anything that you'd ever imagined. Anybody? I have. Anybody else? Nobody else. I have. Beyond. So all the rest of you knew exactly what God was going to do. You've got it all together. Boy, isn't that wonderful? I need here, somebody else needs to take this microphone because these people out here, they, they know exactly what God's going to do. Now let me ask the question again. Have you ever had a preconceived idea of what God was going to do to find out that he went, there we go, way beyond anything you ever hoped or imagined? Good, good. Nothing worse than a bunch of deadbeat Pentecostals on a Sunday morning. All asleep back in their beds and their minds, you know. <laughs> and that's understandable. I'm kind of that way myself sometimes. Today's one of those days. Spring fever, you know, you go out and see the birds singing. And you, you walk out and you got the sunshine and, and the 30 degrees hits you right in the face and you realize you want to go back to bed instead of go outside. Well, this is exactly what had happened to Peter. He had that same thing. He had this preconceived idea of what God was going to do to find out that God went beyond anything he'd ever imagined. 
The 10th chapter of Acts tells of how Peter had gone to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. That's what we are. And how the centurion and his household had received the gospel. Now, this may seem like something small to you because, again, we're Gentiles. And we know we're beyond all that. You know, we're way 2,000 years into the church age. And and we know that God loves everybody the same. We understand. But he didn't know that. He knew that God had sent him there. And he argued with God about it. Now, you think about it. He argued with God. He didn't want to go to a Gentile. They were the people. He was Jewish. He knew the law. He understood that he wasn't going to be a part of that. And God told him to go. And what I have cleansed, he said, don't you consider to be unclean. So he, he goes to the house of Centurion, and, and that household received the gospel. Now, what a shock. What a shock for a Jew like Peter who, who took pride in his adherence. He took pride in his adherence to the law, according to Acts 10, 14. So this experience at Caesarea left an indelible impression upon Peter. There he had witnessed Gentiles receiving the Holy Ghost. Even as he preached, he saw the Holy Ghost fall on them. He could not deny what he had seen and heard. And when he had been seriously questioned by the Jews at Jerusalem, shortly afterward, Peter had responded, What was I, he said, that I could withstand God? He said, What was I that I could withstand God? And here I am with you arguing about going back to the Jewish law? I'd just seen what God did with the Gentiles, and they weren't at all adhering to any Jewish law. But yet God filled him with the Holy Ghost. They were baptized in Jesus' name. He said, how in the world? He said, could, could I? You know, he was just telling them because all of a sudden he, he, he jumped beyond that. He was way over. And for him to understand, and Paul was being the same way, how in the world? Why are we arguing something like this? You know, I've heard that before in, in, in terms of, of meetings. And you have, you have little little details that were that were debated in, in conferences and, and, and i thought and i know i'm not wasn't the only one because there's a lot of people there that kept their mouth shut that i'm sure felt the same way i did sometimes it, it it just doesn't pay to debate over something that is so trivial that it doesn't make any difference at all. Rather, why don't you pray together, seek God together, and let love handle some of these things? Because love, the Bible says, hides a multitude of sins. When you begin to love somebody, you'll find out that they'll come around to the right way of thinking. And curiously enough, sometimes the way you think is not always right. It may be you that changes your mind. Now, once again, Peter stood before the believers at Jerusalem. He said, if God has chosen to give the Holy Ghost to the Gentiles, he argued this. He said, why tempt you, God, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? So it was clear that Peter had fully accepted the Gentile believers, calling them disciples. And surely, if the Almighty made no difference between the Jewish brethren and their Gentile counterparts, then no one was qualified to question the work of the Lord that the Lord was doing. 
So Paul and Barnabas had recently completed their first missionary journey, and, and as they stood before the apostles and elders, they enthusiastically related all the Lord had accomplished. They declared what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles. Yes, he said there had been severe opposition. He said at Lystra, Paul had been stoned and left for dead. But there he had been a thrilling response among the Gentiles. There had been a revival in Iconium at Lystra and evidently at Derby. And new churches had been established. And he said elders, elders and had been ordained in each church. And he said, now you're telling me that that can't have happened because they weren't abiding by the law. Give me somebody with an experience over someone with an opinion every day. I'm on, you know, there's a lot of opinions out there. Opinions are like feet. Everybody's got a couple and they stink. <laughs> Give me someone with an experience. Give me someone who's seen it. And this is what I, I, I can truly, in, in my own way, can relate and understand what they were talking about. Because you, you've seen what God has done. And to have someone tell you that it didn't happen. To have someone tell you that this, this wasn't real. And I've heard this. I've had people accuse some other people, other ministers in this church, uh, of, of something not really happening because of the way it was done. Let me give you a for instance. You go into the Scripture... And it tells you that the Holy Ghost fell on people as they heard the word, which has happened here. The Holy Ghost uh, could be given by laying on of hands, which has happened. And you know how I, I feel about this. A lot of times I let people know. I said, now, remember that, that God's going to give you a language that you don't understand. And because he uses our faculties, our minds, he said, uh, words form in the mind, they come out, they come out the mouth. I said, God will put words up there. But I said, you won't let them come out because you don't understand them. And you, I've talked to people like that, and it actually didn't happen with me, but I've had other people here that, that did the same thing and would accuse that they were teaching him how to speak in tongues. Now, how is that, teaching someone how to speak in tongues? You know what they do? They go back and they let someone seek the Holy Ghost for 25 years and they all get back and they worship and they, they carry on and make a lot of racket. And that person can't even figure out what's going on up in his mind because of all the racket that's occurring. The same way with children. Why, that, 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 that kid's eight or nine years old. Don't tell me that they get the Holy Ghost. I think my, sister, my daughter was about six, something like that, seven, when she got the Holy Ghost. Interestingly enough, she still has it. Now, I realize that people might want to get a renewing in the Holy Ghost, but I like to do that every day. But, you know, you, just, you, just, you, know you, you be careful when you start saying that something didn't happen when God ordained it to happen. You be careful with that. Now, I know we don't have any problem with that here in this church, but, you know, there's some that do. They just would prefer. They've got one old person that's all they've ever done is seek the Holy Ghost in that church, and when that person gets the Holy Ghost, they ain't going to have anybody on the altar. That's really tough, isn't it? But that's exactly how they think. What are we going to do? Well, you know, go out and find somebody else to get it. I hate to think that all the pre uh, church service that I had was over that one person seeking the Holy Ghost. And when that person got it, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've quit having altar calls. 
That's good preaching mean, Brother Robertson. Yes, sir. Try to be as mean as it can be so everybody can preach someone that's, <clears throat> appreciate someone that's nice. <laughs> James defended the testimony of the Old Testament. He said uh, God's promise to the Gentiles, James understood it. James was the half-brother of the Lord. James was the first pastor of the church of Jerusalem. They said that church was 80,000 strong. So I would say that James had something going for him. Perhaps some of the believing Jews in the council thought that Peter, Paul, Barnabas were, disregard their, uh, were disregarding their authority of the Old Testament, or the authority of the Old Testament, rather. But as this point, James, who was the half-brother again of the Lord, who had become a leader in Jerusalem, spoke out and referred to the prophets, particularly the prophet Amos, when he said this. And I'm, I'm quoting Acts 15, 16, 17. These are the words of James. He said, after this, he said, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. There had been a time of desolation for the nation of Israel. But James was saying there will be a time of rebuilding. And with the restoration of David's throne, other nations would turn to God and trust in his name. James had received no vision such as Peter had seen, and he had experienced no miracle such as Paul and Barnabas had experienced. But he was convinced from the Scriptures that Jews and Gentiles were to be a part of God's covenant. He was convinced by the Word of God that this was to, be, to happen. So it wasn't a matter. It wasn't a matter of this thing just being as, as Peter's vision and, and Paul and Barnabas, you know, the, their miracles. This was a matter of the Scripture as well. This thing had three witnesses. The Bible says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So we had the witnesses here that allowed them to know that the Gentiles had also received the Holy Ghost and they weren't abiding by the law of Moses. Apparently, what Paul and Barnabas were sharing with the Jerusalem council was an eye-opening for some, and, and some, uh, some it was alarming. As we, you know, we all tend to view change through the prism of our cultural background. All of us do. Now, while Jesus was on earth, there were those who questioned why the Lord's disciples, unlike those of John and of the Pharisees, were not fasting or fasting often. And Jesus explained that the time had come when his disciples would fast. He knew it was difficult for those steeped in Judaism to readily accept the revolutionary ways of the gospel message. And he goes on to say, no man, and Luke actually says this, no man, he said, also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for, the, for he saith the old is better. But God in his wisdom was now using these church leaders to open the understanding of the Jerusalem council. The speakers had referred to their own experiences and also to the scriptures. So the Lord was doing something new and wonderful. Ancient prophecies were now being fulfilled. Lives given over to idolatry and to debauchery were now being transformed. Surely the God of the Jews was extending his mercy to the Gentiles. Jesus, in fact, was becoming their Lord and their God. There seems to have been no sense of overruling authority when James spoke, but without question, his counsel carried a great deal of weight. Having made his case, he stated, Therefore, it is my opinion that we should not put obstacles in the way of an, uh, way and annoy than disturb those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He said, Let's not put something in their way to cause them to trip. 
And this is exactly what you're trying to do. You said you're trying to cause these people to, to trip up because they didn't like the fact that Gentiles were being a part of the kingdom of God. They didn't like that in the, in the least. And, 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 you know, today you still find some of that. The fact that they cannot accept any form of Christianity. And the reasoning of James is clear, straight to the point. Why bind up those who had this newfound freedom in Jesus Christ? Why trouble the Gentiles in the Jewish rites and ceremonies? Why do that? James suggested a council of Jerusalem write to the Gentile believers, encouraging them to avoid certain practices. Each of these practices would have been offensive to their Jewish brethren and would have brought disharmony within the church. The Gentiles were to abstain from the pollution of idols, that is, of things offered to idols. They were to keep themselves from fornication, from strangled animals, and they were not to eat blood. Okay, now, I'm going to stop here for a minute. Let's go. I'm going to look at this again. They were to keep themselves from fornication, from strangled animals, and they were not to eat blood. Let me ask you this. I need some of you real good scholars. I'm going to look at you and point at you because I know you're scholars. You tell me, is that all that we need to do as Christians today? Go ahead. Very good. Anybody else? Anybody else? Any comment on that? Because there is there's more to it. But you, something you have to understand, because I've had people make mention or actually come to that scripture and try to tell you that, that uh, well, you know, why is it that you believe women shouldn't cut their hair and, and, and all this? Of course, the Bible is replete with why we should, they shouldn't do that. It also tells us there should be a separation uh, between the sexes and dress. So it tells us this. But you, yet you look at this part in the book of Acts, and it says all you need to do is no fornication, don't eat anything that's strangled, don't eat blood, that kind of thing. Um, and they'll, they'll go to that. Well, I, you know, I don't do any of this. Of course, I don't either. Um, I don't eat raw meat. I'm afraid I might get something to eat raw meat. Um, but, you know, th- you look at that, and you realize, too, he's right, exactly. They're building a bridge. But on top of that, what we deal with today wasn't an issue for them then. Most of the uh, fact that some of the things that we have to preach on today, and it's in the Scripture, that's why we preach on it. But it wasn't, you know, it was an issue in the Corinthian church. It became an issue later in dress. It became an issue later in, in, in hair and all of this. It became an issue later. Because most of them understood that even the Gentiles had the separation in the sexes and dress. So, you know, later on, and, and, and when it comes into, you know, now it, it used to be, I've, I've heard it all you know, through the years. You said, well, you know, they, why, why shouldn't a lady wear, wear pants? You know, the pants are cut for them. 
Well, you know, you look at them, and they look the very same as what the men wear. You know, I, I, it, it does. And no matter what, it still comes to that, that there has to be a separation. And not only that, it's a modesty issue. Modesty is another thing that's quite often you see in the Scripture. Modesty is not, you can't, <clears throat> let, let me just be, to me kids in here, women in pants draw the attention of men to certain areas of their body. Okay? And most women know that. Because I've asked them if they knew that. And that's why they dressed in pants that they had to pour themselves into. And so, you know, that, that is, becomes a modesty issue. Because here we have the scripture that tells, tells uh, the men, if he looks on a woman lust after he so much as committed the act. So why should a woman put herself out there in an immodest fashion to cause a man to lust after her? Unless she wanted him to lust after her. Now you got that, it didn't cost you a whole lot. I'm going to jump into something else here. So there is more to it than just the fact of fornication. Of course, you know, you can also look at every one of these and realize that there are certain things that lead to that. What leads to fornication? You know, what leads to wanting to eat strangled? Of course, you get into idolatry when you want to eat something that is strangled. So you need to stay away from idolatry. You know, and there's another place where it actually adds idolatry to it as well. Eating blood the same way. The church had come to a critical point, and a final decision was made to follow the suggestions of James. So the apostles and the elders and the whole church at Jerusalem agreed that Paul and Barnabas were to go back to Antioch and to inform the church there of the council's conclusion. But these two would not be sent alone because there had already been serious dissension at Antioch regarding the matter of circumcision. Judas, whose surname was Barsabas, and Silas were chosen to go confirm that the Gentiles would not be required to adhere to the law. These two companions must have been a great encouragement to Paul and Barnabas because Acts 15.32 states that Judas and Silas were prophets, also themselves, probably meaning they were used in expounding the purpose of God. And what fine men Judas and Silas must have been for them. And, and after a time, Judas returned to the apostles in Jerusalem, but Silas stayed on to work with the Gentile believers. Now, this proved to be a tremendous benefit for Paul. Silas was probably of Jewish birth and also a Roman citizen. And he would eventually travel with Paul on his second missionary journey, endure imprisonment at Philippi, and threatened by a riot at Thessalonica. So he had to have something good going for him to endure what he, he endured. The graciousness with which the leaders at Jerusalem dealt with this situation is impressive. The respect they held for Paul and Barnabas certainly must have helped, but there was also a genuine concern for the well-being of the non-Jewish converts. And as demonstrated in Paul's later epistles, they had a concern for the integrity of the gospel message. So when Christians really want to know God's will and are prepared to sacrifice for the cause of others, God will help them come to the right conclusion. That is the key. You have something that you truly are wondering about, you sacrifice that item. Even if you're not completely in agreement with it, you'll find out that God will bring you to the knowledge of why it is necessary. He always will. But you've got to be earnest in your desire. If you, want, if you want to see something happen within the church, we have to be earnest in our desire to see it move that way because God will bring it to pass if we do. So it's always with the earnest desire. The early church continuously sought after God's approval and considered his leading it absolutely essential, according to Acts 13 and 2. It had to be by the leading of Jesus Christ or it simply was not done. James had encouraged the council to write to the Gentile believers, explaining the position 
it had taken. We can only imagine a discussion that may have ensued regarding this, this letter. But it's clear the apostles and elders wanted to assure the new believers that they were accepted and loved. Further, the council wanted the Gentiles to know they did not concur with the Judaizers and that they fully supported what Paul and Barnabas had done. This was a time when truth needed to decisively be decisively reinforced. You know, let, let, let me help you with something here. If a, if a platform, Bible stand, whatever you want to call it, is not decisively supporting and encouraging truth, then truth will fall by the wayside. It has to come from up here, and it has to be done decisively. Because people have a tendency to want to go the easiest way, and they don't realize the benefits of, of completely being in agreement with the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. And when you are, then you begin to get understanding. You have understanding. And it comes to the point right now, at least with me, it comes to the point where I cannot understand how anybody could be any less than what we are. Why would you want to be any less than what we are? I don't want to take a chance. I said this earlier. I cannot take a chance with my soul simply because something looks good to me. I can't take that chance. And for us as, as, as a God's church, to even, even think in those terms is, is completely, I can't, I can't understand it. We need to be decisive on what we believe. And we can't, you know, it's okay to listen to someone else. We need to learn to listen. I understand that. We need to, but we also need to know that we understand and believe what we have. And we are not going to fall back because someone else has an idea outside the Word of God. So we need to have that. So they sent this letter that informed the Gentile believers that the assembly in Jerusalem was sending Paul and Barnabas, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Judas and Silas also would confirm what had taken place. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, the council wrote, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Uh, the Gentiles would simply be asked to refrain from the things referred to by James. Genuine concern accomplished. Genuine concern accomplished what mere statements of doctrine or clever arguments would never have accomplished. The letter became an affirmation of love and of care, delivered by four faithful men of God. It had the desired effect upon the multitude of believers who were gathered at Antioch. When these Christians, some 300 miles north of Jerusalem, read the letter, they rejoiced at the encouragement it brought to them. Here you had a group of Gentiles. You had a group of Gentiles who didn't really know what to do. They were in a state of confusion. And so they get this letter from Jerusalem, from the elders, that, that showed that they were concerned about what was going on. And they let them know. You read that 15th chapter, let them know what you were told by the sect of the Pharisees that were also believers. He said, what you were told with them was not anything we told them to tell you. They did that on their own. So they knew that they were cared for. You know, many have stated this. People don't care how much you know until you know how much you care, until they know how much you care. And I'm going to say that again. People have stated this. People don't care how much you know until you know how much you care, until they know how much you care. They want to know that you care for them. People accept our doctrine if we carefully present it to them. And we do it out of concern. You know, I don't, none of us want to see anybody go to hell. 
Nobody wants to see anybody lost. Nobody does. So I, you look at the considerable distance that they were from them. And let's look at, let's look at that a minute. Distance. Distance can be measured uh, more so, not, not, let me say, not so much in miles, but sometimes in culture. And a lot of times we, we forget that. We forget that there are people uh, that, that are they're setting in a congregation that culturally they don't have the same understanding that we do or how we present something to them. So, so somehow, somehow we have to show people the love that we have in order to bridge, which you made that statement, to bridge areas of culture. If we don't, if we don't do that, then there's something that's lost. I, you know, case in point, and I've told this story before, but um, in Palau, there, there was this, this Filipino boy. Uh, he probably wasn't a boy. looked like a boy to me. And he couldn't understand a lick of English. But he wanted me to teach him a Bible study. So, you know, I'm sitting across the table teaching him search for truth. I, I, you know, I just went into the uh, New Testament part of it just about salvation. And <laughs> it was so funny because everything I did, he mocked. He did it. He wasn't doing it to, to be mean. He just wanted to be like me. And if I put my hand a certain way, he put his hand a certain way. And I started doing it just to see what he would do. I'd scratch my head, and he'd scratch his head. And I taught him. I went through and taught him everything and stayed right there with him, knowing he didn't understand a word that I said. But somehow... He got a hold, and I, we know how he did. He got a hold of the need of water baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And he's the one. I told you, I baptized him in the, in the Pacific. I baptized him in, in the salt water. And he came out speaking in English. And, and that, was, that was when, that was when I, I, you know, I'm still kind of dense. And that's when Helga told me, he said, he can't speak. And I knew he couldn't. But, you know, I'm so used to hearing English. And he said he can't speak English, and he was talking in tongues and just worshiping God. And, and, and you know, it, it, the thing is that what, I, what happened here was I took the time to do it. You know, and it was, I, I wanted to see him. I didn't know. I knew God could do anything. I didn't know how he was going to do this one, but he did this one. And, I, and I, I've had before, and you've heard me say, I, I had one guy had cancer, and he fell, he fell asleep while I was teaching a Bible study, and I went ahead. Now, I was new in the church. I just went ahead and taught, and then he opened his eyes and looked at me and said, you mean to tell me that I need to be baptized in Jesus' name? And I said, yeah. And he was baptized, got filled with the Holy Ghost, and died within two weeks. So, so yes, you know, you, it's showing the love and, and getting through some, some of these areas. You know, there, there are people that are, that are next to us. You know, you don't have to go to Europe. You don't have to go to the Philippines or Palau to find people who are culturally different right here in Spencer. And, and it's just a matter of showing them love and a little of attention and not just ignoring them. Because we have a tendency, if we don't understand it, we just ignore it. And, uh, you know, I, and I found myself doing that as well. So it's a matter of us. You know, you, you, look at, you look at the 15th chapter of the book of Acts and you see how people cared and their concern. A group of men who decided that it, the Gentile church was worthwhile. It was 300 miles north of them. And so they were willing to send a letter that they, that they wrote out of love for a group of Gentiles. Stand with me. A little early, but not.
I'm done. Let's come early tonight and pray, please. If you can possibly get here and, and spend some time in prayer, do so. Uh, let's let's just continue to pray for them. Just a, uh, and we've had we've had some great moves of God. Baptized, uh, we baptized two on the last Sunday, uh, both of uh, Heather's boys, Heather and Greg's, and uh, you know we we've been seeing great things. But I want to see us continue to do so. Uh, let's continue to uh, see some new people coming in and people saved. That's the most important thing that we can do at this point. And again. Showing them love, showing them attention. It's the greatest thing we can do. That's one great thing about these fellowship groups that we have uh, going on right now. That I really appreciate the fact that that gives an option to some new people and be able to learn to fit in, and they can still get some teaching there. So thank you, all, all of you that are having this fellowship group. I really do appreciate what you're doing. Lord bless you all. Let's raise our hands to the Lord together right now. Father, we thank you for your blessings. Thank you for each and every one that is here, and I pray, God, by your authority and your power, Jesus, that you would move, strengthen us, allow us to do your will above all else, God. And we know it's not your will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. Let us believe it, let us do it, and let us know, God, that you're hearing us, and you hear us always. In Jesus' name, amen. Shake some people's hands and be friendly.